Go back before time, before all galaxies. There he is, the spoken word, creating all things. Can you see him? The word became flesh and dwelt among us, the exact representation of God's glory. Can you see him? Beyond reindeers and ribbons, beyond presents and trees, the real reason for the season is God in the flesh, majesty in a manger. The God who made all galaxies, who came for you. When Paul tries to describe the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, you know the gospel. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again. Didn't stop there. The next thing he says is, and he was seen. Somehow, the fact that people were to experience the resurrected Jesus is part of the gospel story. The Bible says that Jesus is standing, talking with his disciples, and he tells them he must go. And then the text says that he ascended. A cloud received him from their sight. There's more to the story than just what happened when he was on earth. You're listening to Life on the West Side. Here's Nathan Guy. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. After making purification for sins. After. You know, great stories usually have an aftermath. It's why really good movies almost always need to have a sequel. Because what just transpired is so powerful, so important, so moving, it just causes you to ask, what happens next? You remember when C.S. Lewis tried to explain the Jesus story to children. He used the example of a lion named Aslan. And there's a powerful moment when Aslan is right there on the stone, the great stone. And the question is going to be, what happens next? When you think about the gospel story, it is easy to fall into the trap of just thinking that the gospel is really about a great event called the crucifixion or the resurrection. It absolutely is about the crucifixion and the resurrection. But is that all the gospel is about? Not if you just mean by that a great miraculous event. 
Instead, what the crucifixion and the resurrection do to the creation, what it does to the cosmos, what it does to God's great plan, what it does for God's great wisdom and might, what it does for God's relationship with the world. All of that is part of what we mean by the gospel. And so when we tell the story about the birth of Jesus, we know that he was born for a very important reason. But we also, he didn't just come to be born, he came to live for us. And so the life he lived is important. The way he treated other people, the way he offered forgiveness of sins, the way he became the moral example of how to live in this crooked and forsake, God-forsaken world. He didn't just come to live for us, he came to die for us. And so in his death, we find hope and salvation. He didn't just come to die for us, he came to rise for us. And so as he rises from the grave, he forever breaks the bond of sin and death. But that's not all. When Paul tries to describe the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, you know the gospel. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, he rose again. He didn't stop there. The next thing he says is, and he was seen. Somehow, the fact that people were to experience the resurrected Jesus is part of the gospel story. And that's not all. In Acts chapter 1, the Bible says that Jesus is standing talking with his disciples. and He tells them he must go. And then the text says that he ascended. A cloud received him from their sight. There's more to the story than just what happened when he was on earth. What is the aftermath? Well, the first thing I want you to notice is that what Jesus is doing for us now is that after his death and resurrection, Jesus resumes his place. Now, we have to understand what that means by looking at the language of Christ, for example, in John chapter 17. In John 17, verses 1 through 5, Jesus is giving this long prayer, and he says, it's time. Now it's time. I want you to, verse 5, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory that I had with thee before the world was. Do you hear that language? It's time to give me back the full extent of what I gave up in order to come and die a ransom for many. Well, what does it mean for him to have the glory that he had with the Father before the world was. Well, you know, it's so much more. So much more than what you would give an angel, Hebrews 1 tells us. So much more than you'd give a representative. In Titus chapter 2, in verse 13, Titus is told by the author that Jesus Christ is willing to hold the titles of God and Savior. Titus 2.13 says, we're waiting for the return of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So if he can hold the place of God, Philippians 2 tells us that. He didn't think it robbery to be equal with God. If his name, his title, his reputation, his origin, his person 
is that of God himself, then restoring his place means taking up the reins. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is trying to describe what's going to happen in our resurrection. And before he gets to what's going to happen to our bodies, he wants to remind you of what happened to his body. And he says when Christ was raised from the dead, he took over control. The language is this. He must continue reigning until all things are accomplished, until death is no more, until, because all things have been placed under his feet. I want you to notice this. The languages of Christ in control. Picture God as being in the throne room. And when you picture God, do not forget to recognize that right there on the throne is the Lamb. He resumes His place. What is the Christ who walked on the shores of Galilee doing now? Number one, He is reigning in control of the universe as God Almighty. But number two, we know that Christ is fully God. There's no doubt about that. Most everyone I know would affirm that Christ is fully God. But sometimes we fall into the trap of the first Christian heresy. Did you know the first major heresy to pull Christians away from the faith was not a denial of his deity. It was a denial of his humanity. Now think about this with me. Christ is fully God and fully man. We recognize that too, but sometimes we forget the full extent of what that means. We know that Christ came to us as a human, born of the Virgin Mary. We know that he grew up and lived as a human. Hebrews says he was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. We know that he died as a human. He had to because it was his salvific death as one of us that allows us to be with him forever. Hebrews 2 says that Christ was made like his brothers in every way, verse 17. So we know he was born like us. He lived like us. He died like us. But did you know? that John goes out of his way to tell you that he was raised like we will be. Because in John, Jesus shows his body, shows his body to his apostles and to Thomas. And he says, I want you to notice. I want you to notice the nail prints in my hands. I want you to notice the scar on my side. I want you to notice that a, a spirit does not have flesh and bones like I have. The same body that ate fish on the side of the seashore in his resurrected state. We know there's something different about Christ after his resurrection than there was before. There's no doubt about that. But there's also something very same about Christ before and after. And Paul tries to explain what that is. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Christ is reigning until all things are put under his feet. And then he says, you and I need to recognize that his resurrection is the first example, the carbon copy of what's going to happen to us. And he calls our future body a glorified body. I want you to hear that language. When we are raised from the dead, we're going to be different. Right now, our bodies are corruptible. When we're raised, they're going to be incorruptible. Right now, we experience decay. When they're raised, we'll experience no decay. They will be different. 
but there'll also be something similar. You will be you. Now, what does it mean for you to be you? Only God can fully answer that question, but I know this. When Paul is talking to the Christians in Thessalonica, he says, I pray that God will keep you, body, soul, and spirit, all together and holy until the coming of our Lord Jesus. Somehow you involves all that you are. And so your resurrected body will be different. It'll be a glorified body, but it'll be you. You don't shed your humanity when you rise from the dead. You experience glorified humanity. Now that language of a glorified body is the same language we find when Paul talks to the Christians in Philippi. And he says in Philippians 3, we await a Savior who will transform our lowly bodies, ready for this, to be like His glorious body. There's the same language that we have for what you and I are going to experience. So if the language of the resurrection of Jesus is that he has a glorified body, a glorious body, and you and I are going to have a glorious body, what happens in the ascension? Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that as they stood there gazing, they realized that Jesus had shed his body to go to heaven. It doesn't say that. It was the same body that went up that the text says will come back down. So, the first thing I notice is that the human body of Jesus, the human nature that Jesus took on, is still there when he raises from the dead. I want to continue with a second thought. Do you notice that in 1 Timothy 2 in verse 5, Paul wants to make a strong point about who Christ is now. Now, in verse 3, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 3, he says that God, our Savior, wants all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Do you remember that phrase? God, our Savior? We already saw that. In Titus 2 and verse 13, God and Savior is Jesus Christ. Well, in 1 Timothy 2... He says, our God and Savior wants all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He's already hinted that when he says God and Savior, he has Jesus in mind. But look at the next verse, verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. And here's where he could say, Christ Jesus. That's the right answer. The one mediator between God and man is Christ Jesus is the right answer. He also could have said, the one mediator between God and man is the God, Christ Jesus. He actually has already said that basically in verse 3. But he wants you to know that the one who was fully divine and fully human is still fully divine and fully human. Because he says, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The Greeks have two words that we translate as man. One is the Greek word aner, that means male. Remember in Genesis, God made them male and female? But the other word we translate man is anthropos, which means human being. And that's the word he uses here. He's trying to get you to understand the glorified body of Christ is the example of our future glorified body that he takes with him. And he himself is the man. Didn't used to be, but still is. Why do you think he's doing this? I want to go to a third point. 
because Jesus is our high priest. In Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 17, the Hebrew writer says that Christ was made like his brothers in every respect. Now, we could stop there and just talk about the philosophy that must be true if that's the case. Namely, you and I, what is it that we all share together? That's what Christ also shared. But he goes further. Why was he made like his brothers in every way? Next line. So that he might become our high priest and make atonement for our sins. He became like us in every way so that he could be our high priest. Now, that means in order to offer the sacrifice, he had to be one of us. Now, you could argue, well, I guess that's what, that's what happened back then. He became one of us so he, so he could do that, and then he's done with that, so he got rid of that, and now he goes back to just being God and nothing else. But look at chapter 4. In Hebrews chapter 4, Paul's, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, he is still our high priest. He is still offering a continual sacrifice. And you and I are able to enter into the throne of grace because our high priest is still at work. And if none of that is convincing, may I suggest one more? The last point on this one. Jesus came to fulfill what humanity was always intended to be. In Genesis, when God makes man, he says, let's make man in our image. I have no doubt that even on your worst day, there is something about you that images God. You, a lot of people have spent a lot of time trying to figure out what is it that makes us image bearers of God. Is it that we're the only beings that can create and enjoy creativity? That may be something, a part of it. Is it because we're able to worship and acknowledge our creator? That may be part of it. But whatever it is, you and I were made to be image bearers of God. In fact, that's what it means to be human. But in Colossians 1, when Paul is trying to describe all this cosmic language about Christ, calls him the firstborn from the dead, says he holds all things together, he also says this, he is the image of the invisible God. And while your first thought is he must be talking high, please notice he's using language to describe what you and I were always meant to be. He is the perfect, perfect man. And that means that when he who is fully God and he who is fully man goes to sit at the right hand of the majesty on high, it is proof that humans can live forever with God. And when you are hurting and you want to talk to a high priest who knows what it's like to be you, he doesn't just have to think back to what it used to be like for him. Number three, what else is going on right now? Well, he is reassuring and he is empowering us. I love the fact that Christ is not a passive leader. 
Our Christ is sitting on the throne. He is at the controls and he is involved in the work and the life of his church and in the world. We have language, for example, in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 12 or in 1 Peter 1 and verse 11. The writers talk about the strength that I now have because I've been given it by Jesus Christ. The writers seem to think that I can have strength that's supplied by Christ. You know the line. You know the verse that's on every uh, gym, Christian gym uh, anywhere around in America. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, which has nothing to do with weightlifting, but everybody thinks it does. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 1, Paul is talking about a gathering of people and he says, just think about it. When we're gathered to worship God and the power of Christ is present, do we forget that? Do we lose sight of that? That when we take the Lord's Supper, we're not just remembering something that happened before, we're communing with Christ now. The power of Christ is present. Breaking down strongholds, changing lives. You know, I've heard of a church service where there were two neighbors who could not get along. They lived next to each other, but they didn't talk to each other, but they went to church together. But they sat on two different sides of the building. And then there was something, it was, maybe it was something in the reading. There was something that gripped their hearts. And wouldn't you know it, in the middle of the Lord's Supper, One gets up from this aisle and he walks over to the other side and he says, let me give you this communion and you give it to me for we are one in Christ. And in that moment, everyone sees what we actually try to experience every day, that we are one in Christ. And all you can say is the power of Christ is present. That's what he does. He continues to reassure. He continues to empower his people. And then lastly, right now, Our Lord Jesus Christ holds in his heart the dead who die in the Lord. This is a comforting one. Many of us have friends and loved ones who have gone on and we wonder where they are. It's a hard thing to answer. There are so many different Christian theories about where exactly souls are until the resurrection when we're reunited to be fully ourselves. But I know this. I know that those who die in the Lord experience blessing and peace and the presence of Christ. The Bible says so. In Revelation 14 and verse 13, And I heard a voice from heaven say, Blessed are those who die in the Lord. It must be true. In Revelation 6, There are souls that have been martyred, slain for the word of God. And it's kind of a depressing passage until you realize what's actually happening. Because at first it sounds so terrible. They've been martyred for the word of God. And they cry out, how long, O Lord, faithful and true, until you avenge our blood on the earth. It sounds like a a morbid story. But listen again. The souls that have been slain for the word of God are alive. And they're speaking to Christ. It makes sense of Paul's language in Philippians. In chapter 1, there he is in a jail cell, and he's contemplating what might happen to him. And he says, listen, if I have to die, if I have to leave, I know this. I'll be with 
Christ. Those who die in the Lord are held safe in the heart of the Christ who suffered and died for them. They're at peace and they are blessed for they're with the Lord. There are more arts we could cover. We know he's going to return. We know that he's going to repay. We know there's going to be some sort of redemption. We know that there's going to be reclaiming. We know that he's going to reign forever and ever. But we know this. The story doesn't end with his resurrection. It's just beginning. And you and I can experience eternal life, not just in the future, but we can start experiencing that now because our resurrected Lord is alive and well. Won't you accept him into your life by being baptized in a watery grave of baptism, rise to walk a new life, being like him in his death, we shall be like him in his resurrection. Thanks for joining. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. I hope you feel that love in every sermon that's preached on this podcast. You can find more sermons, transcripts, study guides at nathanguy.com. Please stay tuned for another lesson and rest in the love of Christ.